first of all, I saw one Indian woman and she had religious literature, Christian religious literature in her hands, very easily seen. I didn't quite see that she had a cohort working the other side of the street. And then I looked and I saw with my own eyes, as did the Swami, this other woman partnering, obviously, with the other one, because she had looked like they had the same literature, talking to what looked to be like a, a maybe a 10-year-old Indian girl. And this woman said to the uh, Indian girl, as she was showing her the literature, see, your Hindu gods are demons. That broke my heart. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, HAF Managing Director Samir Kalra talks with Fred Stella about his recent speaking and listening trip to Guyana, where he learned about both the vibrancy of the Hindu community there, as well as some of the challenges they're currently facing. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to uh, Fred Stella. We're really happy to have you joining us today. Uh, Fred is a true Renaissance man. He is an actor, a host of a re- weekly radio program on religion and spirituality, a Hindu priest, and an interfaith leader in his local Grand Rapids, Michigan community. In 2012, Grand Rapids Mayor George Hartwell actually presented Fred with the city's Champion of Diversity Award for his work in interfaith relations. And probably most importantly, he's also a member of the Hindu American Foundation's National Leadership Council, where I've had the privilege of knowing Fred for several years now, and I've had the opportunity to have several great conversations with him along the way. So really pleased to have him here with me today to talk about a really exciting journey he recently took to the small Caribbean nation of Guyana. Uh, Welcome, Fred. Thank you very much, Samir. Uh, And if I may make one correction... I'm not a priest. That is to say, I do not do Vedic rituals, etc. The post that I have with my temple, I am the pracharic there, which we translate as outreach minister. So I do pastoral work, lecturing, tours, uh, things of that nature. And and quite frankly, they always call me a priest. <laughs> <laughs> so then my mistake can be forgiven. But absolutely, for yeah, yeah. They they refer to me as a priest, even though uh, when we created this post, it was made very clear I'm not a priest. What for, it, just a convenient word. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks for that clarification, Fred. Um, you know, which actually, you know, before we kind of jump into the conversation about Guyana and what really brought that trip on, um, I think actually the story of you actually even coming to Hindu Dharam is really worth discussing a little bit. And um, it's a fascinating story. Um, and so maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, your spiritual experience with Hinduism, how you came to the Dharma and how you kind of evolved over the years. Sure, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you the, uh, the drugstore version so we can, we can move forward, but I'm, I'm happy to share. There are several points in my life where I could point to the beginning. And if you really want the beginning, beginning, the very first uh, crumbs, if you will, of, of some interest, I was actually quite young. I was 
maybe four or five or six years old. And I got in this habit of what we now call meditating. Back then, I had no idea what I was doing. If you were to walk into a room and see me sitting down with my eyes closed and say, Freddie, what are you doing? I would not have an answer for you. But it was sort of a spontaneous meditation where I would sit and I would contemplate the soul. I mean, I, at that point, I believed in a soul. I was raised Roman Catholic. And it wasn't until years later that I remembered, wait a minute, <laughs> I did this before. And, and I did it for, uh, I can't remember how long, how old I was when I stopped, but I did stop. But I never forgot that I did that. Then. Like a lot of people in my generation, when the Beatles went to India, something clicked. And so that's another point in my life where I could say that it it might have been a beginning. I remember my mother when she found out that I was quite fascinated with the Beatles going to the ashram of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in 1968. I remember her being kind of skeptical and saying, so do you believe this man has special powers from God? And I didn't know how to answer that question, but I said like, uh, yeah. And she just kind of looked at me like, I feel sorry for you chum, but, but it really was a a breakthrough. Then when I was 13, maybe a year later, I started to seriously question the dogma of Christianity, not not just the the Catholic Church, but Christianity in general. Um, But I knew that I still liked Jesus. I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and I didn't want to resign from my Catholic school and stop going to Catholic Mass. I, I didn't feel the need to do any of that. I just decided that I was going to believe whatever I was able to believe, and the rest I would just put on a shelf somewhere. And I had no idea how to find the answers to the questions I was looking for that satisfied me. It wasn't until my sophomore year in my Catholic high school uh, when I took a comparative religions class. And I was fortunate to have a teacher who every religion uh, we studied, she was very excited about. Uh, she was not a um, a nun or, and uh, obviously not a priest. Um, uh, she was a lay teacher, but she was Catholic. But she taught every religion with the greatest amount of respect. And while we covered Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and whatnot, I, I was interested in all of them. But nothing sort of hit me uh, like like Hinduism did. I just felt something really resonate. During the school term, I decided to take a self-directed field trip to the only Hindu temple in Detroit, Michigan in 1970, uh, which was an ISKCON temple. And I was just a, a few different explosions went off during that trip. I was very, very excited. Uh, I, I never joined ISKCON. But at that time in Detroit, there were really very few expressions of the Dharma. I I would suspect that at that time, outside of ISKCON, there might have been a a, a few meditation groups and probably people meeting in homes to do pujas. But that was my introduction 
to, to, uh, to Hindu Dharma. I then studied from a variety of sampradayas for a number of years. Um, it took me quite a while to actually decide, yes, I am a Hindu. Uh, I was calling myself a Zen Catholic. I was calling myself, uh, you know, I, it was before the time uh, people started using the term spiritual, but not religious, but that was kind of sort of what I was. And then I often say, uh, uh, sometimes, you know, you have these, uh, uh, these boys uh, growing up, uh, they, they suffer from uh, uh, attractions they can't quite explain, but they still go ahead and they date girls. And then in the college, they date women. And finally, they get married, perhaps. But at some point, they wake up and they say, who am I kidding? I'm gay. Really, one time I just woke up and said, who am I kidding? I'm a Hindu. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me just actually really briefly ask you, um, was that, were you trying to fight it uh, because you didn't understand fully what it meant to be a Hindu? Or was there some hesitancy about maybe the perception of Hinduism in the U.S. at that time? Part of it, uh, I know, was simply, as you understand, I'm Italian-American, and there is this incredible bond between Italian culture and Catholicism. And uh, even though I was the farthest thing from a practicing Catholic to actually finally say, I am not a Catholic anymore, uh, would take a major leap uh, psychically. Um, also, of course, there uh, is always this, this um, absurd fallacy that uh, Hinduism and Indian ethnic identity go hand in hand. And so I had to get over that. And I was able to get over that just simply by meeting more and more people who were uh, not of Indian extraction or Indian, uh, who, who proudly identified as, as Hindu. I, I distinctly remember one of the things that uh, got me going, even though I wasn't calling myself a Hindu, um, I was still subscribing to Hinduism today. And uh, I, I can't remember why I ended up calling the magazine, but I did for, for some reason. I was talking to someone from Hinduism Today, and when I mentioned that I didn't refer to myself as a Hindu, there was a little pause. And I'm sure the other person on the line was, oh, you're Hindu, buddy. You just don't know it yet. <laughs> you know, uh, and and I, I know that that had an effect on me. And so finally, it, it uh, I remember for a while I was referring in it. There was this in-between period uh, where I was uh, calling myself an adherent to the Hindu yoga tradition. That is exact. Okay. That's it, a lot it, of words spread to get out there. <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah. there, there really is, you know, it's like if a woman says, do you love me? Well, I have these feelings inside from my heart that are expressive and perhaps might be of a loving persuasion. <laughs> so it was something like that. And, and then uh, finally, again, I woke up one day and, and realized uh, this is ridiculous. I am a Hindu. There, here's, here's one thing too. And I didn't come to this till later, but it's really, really important. There are 
a lot of people like me, that is to say, or like I was, people who are uh, non-Indian origin, who really absorb so much of the Dharma. They read, study, and love the Bhagavad Gita. They go to Kirtan, but they do all of this in uh, mostly in isolation, and they don't claim to be a part of the community. And while I would never tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do, I will say that when you become a part of the community, you have the opportunity to serve. And that was missing in my life. I wasn't serving. That's extremely important to anyone in any religion. If you're not serving, I don't think that you're fully invested. And so when I did start to uh, identify as Hindu, um, uh, I started serving. And that's, that's pretty much where, uh, where it really, really started. And my, um, my Sampradaya, the, the, the one that I was initiated in, took Guru Diksha, uh, was uh, Self-Realization Fellowship, the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. I was uh, uh, initiated by Swami Dharmananda. And, and there are a number of people in SRF who don't, who choose not to identify as Hindu, even though they will identify with the, they will say they're practitioners of Sanatana Dharma, the word Hindu kind of scares them. And again, a lot of it has to do with that ethnicity issue. Um, But there are also a number of people in SRF, and I know uh, a number of them, uh, who have no problem with the word Hindu. Well, I think it's uh, probably... uh almost a matter of time um, where there's going to be just more of an acceptance of what it means to be Hindu, maybe in the West. I think traditionally in the, in India um, and South Asia, more broadly speaking, the definition of being a Hindu is so vast um, that, you know, that it probably, if you contra- you know, compare that to here in America, there's a, just a specific idea of what it is to be a Hindu. And along with that goes this idea that you have to be Indian or there's a, cultural aspects of that, which I think go along with any religion, um, you know, uh, to be sure. But I think it's been, it's kind of a narrow box of what has become known to be defined as a Hindu in the West and particularly here in the U.S. Exactly. And, and uh, particularly the uh, Swamis who came over a hundred plus years ago, uh, specifically, I'm thinking of Vivekananda and Yogananda. Uh, if you read their, their writings from back then, they use the word Hindu as an ethnicity. So I, I just read real recently something that uh, uh, Yogananda said. He said, uh, uh, don't, don't be proud when you say, I am Hindu or I am American. Well, why didn't he say, don't be proud uh, when you say, I am Hindu or I'm Christian? Or why didn't he say, I am Indian or I am American? Uh, all through those early writings, you see the word Hindu used in its ethnic sense. When I give lectures, I, I say um, that the reason that 99% or whatever of all the Hindus in the world uh, are ethnically Indian, whether or not they live in India, but they could be of Indian extraction living in a variety of countries. But but the reason for that is twofold. Uh, number one, it's not a, a, a missionizing religion, so 
the 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 Hindus of old did not go into neighboring countries or down the Silk Road into the Middle East or to Europe and and try to convert people. And, and this is why, for the most part, we we see Hinduism being so heavily identified with uh, India and other parts of South Asia. And I think that's actually a perfect transition point, um, talking about migrations of Hindus uh, that are of ethnic origin to other parts of the world. Um, oftentimes it's been voluntary, but there's also been instances in history, especially during the British colonial period, where that migration was involuntary and where they were taken as uh, laborers to different parts of the world. Uh, one of those places uh, that have, saw a heavy influx of Indian and Hindu laborers during the colonial period was the Caribbean. Um, and in particular, one country there, Guyana, which you had the recent experience of visiting um, and visiting and, and talking to the Indian Hindu community there. And maybe if you can talk a little bit about your journey there and the community and really what inspired that trip to start with. Sure. Well, first of all, um, let's go back a couple of years. Uh, I uh, am a, a delegate on an annual basis uh, and a speaker at the Hindu Mandir Executive Conference, which is been held all over the United States and uh, one year in Canada. And at, at the end of the conference, uh, let's say we're in San Jose, which we, which we were in one year, and uh, it's announced, well, next year we're going to be in dot, dot, whatever, Atlanta. We're going to be in uh, Chicago. And I remember that, uh, uh, the announcement was made. We're going to be in Trinidad next year. And I thought to myself, Trinidad? I think somebody just wants to take a vacation and write it <laughs> off. <laughs> I had no idea why we were going to Trinidad until I found out that, that uh, there's a significant Hindu community in Trinidad, which, of course, is just next door to Guyana. Well, when I was uh, at HMEC, I met a gentleman who was from Guyana, born and raised in Guyana, and then he later settled in Toronto, uh, Ramsadeo. And uh, somehow he learned of a lecture tour that uh, I went on back in 2005. I was sponsored by an organization in India called Vivekananda Kendra. And they're a wonderful, wonderful Sangha. They uh, work a lot in education, poverty relief. And uh, as, as I'm sure you know, Samir, there is a significant amount of evangelization in the northeast of India. And they asked me to go on an approximately 30-city lecture tour. And, and by city, I mean town, village, uh, once or twice an open field. And so I did this in 2005 over a little less than a, a month's time. It was a very, very rigorous uh, journey, but it was absolutely wonderful. One of the life-changing events uh, uh, I've had. He, he learned of that. And then he said, Fred, I want you to do the same thing in Guyana. And I said, well, I'd, I'd be happy to. And, and so by that time, I realized, ah, there is 
a Hindu community in the Caribbean. It took a couple of years from that original conversation of, hey, we, we would like to have you do this, to my actual uh, execution of it, uh, which happened in 2019. And so that's, that's what got me going. And what I didn't realize, and one of the reasons it took two years, is I thought that there was an organization like Vivekananda Kendra in Guyana that would sponsor me and take care of everything. And that was not the case. We had to cobble together several different organizations and temples and then bring a Hindu American Foundation in as a sponsoring partner to make it all work. And it did work. Uh, I, I was thrilled with the, um, with the experience. And it was more than just a lecture tour. Samir, um, I call it a, lis- uh, a lecture slash listening tour because the, the information that I received was certainly as important, if not more important than the information that I relayed in my, in my lectures to the people there. And in terms of the context in why they wanted to bring you out there, did that have... Um you know, a similarity to why you were going into the Northeast, meaning that it was specifically because of some of the challenges that the Hindu community is facing with evangelicism and with predatory proselytization, as we like to talk, uh, call it here at um, HAF. Um, and was that one of the specific purposes that was discussed with Ram Sadeo uh, before you put together a Guyana trip? No. That was the only reason that it was okay, okay. it was discussed. No, there was there was it wasn't like come and try our food. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, by the way, we've got this little issue. Maybe you can uh, speak a few words on. No, no, that was absolutely it. They are they are challenged in a big way. A lot of the issues that I saw in um, in India were replicated here in uh, in Guyana. And and I want to be clear that some Christian organizations are worse and some are better than others. Uh, in, in you know some uh, denominations, really they they have a presence there, and if people want to investigate uh, their religion, they're more than happy to welcome you into the fold. But the the the, the hardcore evangelical fundamentalist Pentecostal churches, those are the ones that are extremely aggressive and they will, they will use, you know, by any means necessary, making attempts to bring people into, into their fold. The, the roots of this go back to colonial Guyana where, you know, these indentured servants were brought in and they were brought in specifically because slavery had been outlawed. This is around 1840 slavery is outlawed uh the black africans are freed but somebody's gotta mine the sugar plantations so these indians are brought over and uh, for people who aren't quite aware of the indentured servitude program you really live in similar conditions to a slave but you're not really a slave. Uh, you do get a pittance and you have a contract. And so you know that in X amount of years, you are going to be free. 
and you're going to have control over your destiny. And that, that is what is promised to you. And the, the British did keep their promises. Uh, these people were, were freed at some point. But while the British had their dominion, they made it very clear that there were great perks to becoming a Christian. You got you got better jobs. You you uh, were moved into supervisory positions. I was told by one person that, at least according to uh, the the oral tradition that has been brought down uh, to this day, that they would scout out people who they felt were very good looking. All right, the, the indentured servants who are really good looking, and they would set their eyes on them to groom them to give them special treatment and uh, that they would become community leaders and aid in the uh, transition from Hinduism uh, and Islam, because uh, some of the Indians were Muslim, uh, but make that transition from uh, uh, the religions of their birth uh, to Christianity. Now, what's interesting, too, is I just mentioned Islam. Uh, there is a, a Muslim population in in Guyana. And w- one thing that's interesting is when you're driving down the road, you will see uh, perhaps either a mosque or a mandir. And you have to get up a, fairly close to, to figure out whether it is a mosque or a mandir because the architecture is so, so similar. I found that fascinating. And so, so Fred, let me just actually ask a, a, a quick question there. Is it the architecture is more traditional Indian architecture or is it uh, kind of adapted to the local Guyanese or a combination or how are you not able to tell? Because a lot of times in traditional Hindu architecture is very distinct. I'd, I'd have to show you pictures, but I will, I will tell you this, that th- both of them seem very Indian. These buildings do not melt into the landscape. And, you know, once once you get close, you know, you can see, uh, um, you know, an ohm sign or you can see a, a, a statue of a deity in front or you will see a minaret or, uh, uh, the, you know, the uh, the um, uh, star in, and crescent moon. There none of them uh, that I recall look like the great grand temples of India. They're much smaller and they are, are simpler, at least on the outside. The uh, just as a side note, for the most part, the Hindus and the Muslims get along very, very well in Guyana. Um, But from what I hear, the Christians leave the Muslims alone. They really focus on the Hindus. Uh, uh, Apparently, they see fissures in the Hindu community that they do not see in the Muslim community. Maybe if you can give our listeners a, a, an idea of what the demographics are of Indians and then what percentage of those Indians are Hindus, Muslims, and maybe those that have actually become Christians now. Well, right now, Samir, the, uh, the Hindu population is just under 25%. Uh, the Muslim population is just about at 7%. and Everything else is all the the, the different stripes of um, of Christianity. Uh, the Pentecostals they they reign supreme with almost twenty three percent 
of uh, of the population. Then you have Seventh Day Adventists, Anglicans, Methodists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, um, non-denominational twenty percent. So uh, you know you're you're looking at uh, almost three quarters uh, or or two thirds of um, of the country of Guyana being Christian. And out of that, I've gotten, I've gotten different answers when I've asked about uh, uh, Hindus converting. Um, But uh, the fact that you have so many uh, people of uh, Indian um, origin, you've got, you've got about 38% of the country is Indian. 38%. 38%. Okay. 24% of the people are Hindu. So you can see that uh, they, they did make some, uh, they've made some strides. I've heard that uh, the, the uh, Hindu population has decreased in recent times by as much as, uh, 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 as much as a third. But again, I've, I've heard other people contradict that. And, and this is in conversation with Hindus. Regardless, you can see the efforts. And so it's, it's very similar to what I saw in Northeast India. I don't believe, no one told me that this idea of dangling uh, good jobs in front of you, that, that really doesn't, doesn't exist on any significant scale right now. But there is bribery. I spoke to one group of, of Hindus who said that the, the going rate for becoming a member of a church was $50 American. And then I'm, I'm having this conversation with this one person who lives in one area and another person chimes in who's from another area. And he says, we're getting a (laughs) hundred. And then, and then someone says that uh, uh, he he has us, I believe it was a brother. Yeah. His brother was was lured into a Christian fold with uh, the promise of uh, some financial compensation. And so his brother uh, just excoriated him, said, what are you doing? You're leaving your tradition, blah, blah, blah. How can you do this? And he says, uh, uh, just until I get my finances under control, <laughs> then I'm coming back. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, that's sorry for that's an interesting um, point there, because. Two, I, I mean, two things in particular. One, I think, does that speak to almost the ease and comfort Hindus have in general and just recognizing divinity in so many different ways that somebody can say, yes, maybe there's some economic benefit there, but they, you know, can seamlessly transition from one spiritual tradition to another without even blinking an eye and then come right back. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, and see, here's, here's the thing. Many Hindus would have no problem with the concept that that Jesus uh, was is somehow a divine figure. You know, Jesus being like a, a Buddha or Jesus being like a Krishna. They they can say, well, yeah, we sure that that's no problem. Um, I mentioned that they stay away from the Muslims, of course, because uh, for the Muslims, that's a significant leap to go from Jesus the prophet to Jesus, the, the God or God man, um, in, in Hinduism, as we say that the, there isn't quite that leap when we start talking about Jesus as being unique. Yes, that's, that's a bit of a leap. 
Um, but the uh, ability to uh, go to a church and and see, uh, be a part of worship to God, and yeah, I I see it as being a very easy transition for people. The challenge is that they are then often strongly encouraged to cut off relations with their Hindu family and friends. And that's where a lot of the, the, the problem lies. And that was actually going to be my second question there was that what, if you can, you know, maybe just talk a little bit more about the familial and communal impact that it has, especially if you're going into one family and one person becomes a Christian and the other remains within the Hindu fold, you know, what psychologically does that do to the community and to families themselves? Oh, yes, I did speak to people about that. And, and it can be devastating uh, because now you have one person who uh, not only is of a, a, you know, joined a different religion, uh, but now their their life is now a part of that church. And, and as long as the family stays outside in the Hindu camp, they, they can no longer relate to him this, the same way. Uh, you know, here's the thing. For instance, let's take take myself as an example. I moved from Catholicism to the Hindu Dharma, but that doesn't mean I can't celebrate Christmas with my extended family. I it, it, the, the thought never entered my mind. We can do that. We're Hindu, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay? But once somebody becomes Christian, especially a denomination like the Pentecostals, no, you can't celebrate Diwali and John Mashtami and Ram Navani. No, that, that is not allowed. You really have to abandon all of that. And let me say something else uh, here, Simmer. I have tried to see if there was any causal relationship to this problem. And no one has been able to, to answer me confidently. So what I'm about to say is pure speculation. But, well, the first is a fact. The second is speculation. The fact is that Guyana has the highest suicide rate in the world. In the world, per capita. A small country like that, but per capita. There are more suicides in Guyana than anywhere else. And the ethnicity, if, you're, if you live in Guyana, the, the chances are you are either of Indian extraction or African extraction. Very few people are, are not one or the other. There's a smattering of Chinese. There's almost no white people. I, I saw probably, and I, and I was around the whole uh, populated area of Guyana. And I saw less than 10 white people outside of the airport. Is that including yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it wasn't for me. <laughs> so, so I, I saw at least one white, white person a day when I, when I was combing my hair. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, the, the ethnicity of the people who tend to commit suicide are Indian. 
And I, I asked a number of people why this is. And you, you get different stories from people. And I, and I say, is this campaign for conver- conversion, this frustration of being uh, in, in this culture that is encouraging a movement to Christianity, does that have anything to do with it? And nobody, nobody commits. Nobody commits. And they also talk about it. It's a poor country, Samir. I think you know that it's a poor country. But uh, I'll tell you this. While it's poor, I was in Georgetown, which is their capital. And I did see uh, what we would refer to as urban poverty. But I spent most of my time in the smaller areas. You do not see the kind of poverty that you see here in the United States. Or in India, you don't see people living in tarps uh, on on the street. Um, I saw no begging. No, again, if I spent more time in Georgetown, maybe I would have. And Georgetown town is heavily uh, crime ridden. Well, you know, one interesting parallel I just wanted to actually mention here is actually in conversations with Bhutanese refugees here in the U.S. and amongst the Bhutanese refugee population, there's an extremely high suicide rate. And I believe similarly, it's actually the highest for any refugee community. Um, And they similarly are facing an issue with conversions. And one of the factors that people did talk about was losing their culture, losing their identity and losing their religious practices, which is a huge part of their identity. Um, Obviously, already being a refugee population in a foreign country, um, probably heavily contributes to that, but also does not being able to hang on to your traditions and your practices. So I see somewhat of a parallel there in the destruction that losing your religion can do to people. Um, and not just in the communities that you talk to in Guyana, but also with the Bhutanese refugee population here that are Hindus primarily. And and you may know that I work with the with the Bhutanese community here uh, locally in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so I have discussed this with them and you are correct. They, they have the same kinds of issues and there, there has been a strong, strong effort to convert them. What's interesting too, talking about different refugees, um, Grand Rapids for people who might not be aware, we're in Western Michigan. Uh, second largest city in the in the state after after Detroit. Um, we're a very welcoming community to refugees. One time, I asked an imam of a Bosnian mosque if he, if his people, uh, uh, his his flock, if you will, experienced the kind of aggressive uh, conversion efforts that the Bhutanese have. And he looked at me like I asked him if, you know, he grew chickens in his living room. I, I, he, 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 just, he, he shook his head. No, like absolutely not. It is true that most of the people involved in the, uh, the efforts to settle uh, refugees are Christian. And again, they're not going to turn people away who want to convert. But uh, that population did not experience quite what the Bhutanese have. So kind of getting back to Guyana, um, Fred, you know, you mentioned that, you know, this was more of a listening tour, um, you know, than a a speaker tour or a lecture tour. 
And, um, you know, you kind of relate some of the stories, um, you know, about conversions and, uh, you know, what that's done to families. Uh, can you talk maybe a little bit about, you know, like a broader, bigger picture perspective in what this is doing, you know, beyond the micro level, you know, smaller communities and families, but just the entire Hindu population? What does this mean for the community that's now been there for probably a couple hundred years? Uh, almost in Guyana, what is this doing to them? Um, how is this affecting you know the Hindu presence in Guyana, for lack of a better uh, phrase? Well, for one thing, we think that it might be bringing people together. Uh, uh, right now, one of the concerns. Let, let me go back to when when we were talking about me going. And I said, well, I assumed there was a Vivekananda Kendra-like organization who would handle everything, who would schedule my tour. Because believe me, when I, when I was in India, I just had to show up. Everything was done for me. My schedule was made. My transportation was uh, taking care of everything. Boom, boom, boom. I just had to show up, speak, and interact with the people, and then onward and upward. But that was not the case in Guyana. Uh, there were multiple organizations that we had to work with, and some of them were not in consort. One organization wasn't quite in consort with another organization, and uh, some some organizations were more political than other organizations, and that proved to be a challenge. So they are in the process of trying to become solidified, trying to, to focus. See, here's the thing. The, the politics, politics actually plays into this as well. As I mentioned, you have a, uh, the, the, the population is a combination of mostly black African and Indian groups. Uh, the, the, those who are black African almost 100% Christian. And a lot of the, a lot of the efforts uh, come from that population. But then of course, over the, the, the decades, they've been able to acquire Indian people who now are, are in the position of bringing people into the, the Christian fold politically. So you have uh, your black politicians and Indian politicians and some of the Indian uh, uh, groups are are tied in politically as well, and they have to be very careful. They don't want to bring up conversion around election time, all right, because that becomes a hot potato, and they just don't want to have to deal with that. Number one, I would say, they the the Hindu community is not as unified as it could be. And I don't know if that is because of the conversion efforts of the past century that have caused it to be that way, but it's entirely possible because as we both know, and I'm sure many people listening to this uh, podcast are aware of, uh, the British loved to divide populations along any lines they could possibly find to be able to subjugate them even, even further. There is also the need to be to be very proud of being Hindu, and some people 
Uh, and that is one of the things that they asked me to do when I came there. They said, if they see a, a white, a non-Indian Hindu from America who actually left Christianity, that might do something to to encourage pride. Now, whether it did or not, I I can't say, but but I know that that was one of the encouragements to me, to, to make sure that I let them know that Hindu Dharma in the United States has a presence, that it's respected, and that people can move from one tradition to the other, and oftentimes they, they, choose, uh, they choose Hinduism. And, and, and let me say something right here. It, it's not 100% in the direction of your question, but I think it's important. I was so impressed with the priests and how passionate they are of, of um, a renaissance, of, of, of creating a renaissance of Hindu culture there. The priests in Guyana are actually, uh, aside from being priests, meaning that they conduct worship rituals, they are also ministers, meaning that they give people guidance, they, they, they counsel um, uh, youth, they counsel um, uh, married couples on issues they may be having. They do not, they do not just sit in the temple and uh, do Abhishekam and Archana. They are out in the community. They, they all have jobs. Uh, being a priest is something that, that is not a profession. It's an avocation. And uh, I was really, really impressed. And they're doing good work. They're doing really, really good work. They just need more support. Uh, and what they're hoping for is that the larger Hindu community in the rest of the world, in the United States, in India, will, will see their situation and offer some sort of support. Uh, and that support, of course, come in, in many, many different ways. You know, maybe if you can just talk uh, a little bit about what Hinduism actually looks like in Guyana. Um, I know Hinduism is a very um, uh, diverse religion in the sense that its practices and its traditions can seem very different from one place to the other, although there's obviously an underlying unity in it and a lot of common threads and themes. Um, but maybe some things in particular, you mentioned the role of the priest, which is almost like a combined uh, between a spiritual guide or a guru and the priest that we traditionally think of as the person to commit, uh, conduct rituals, um, combined into one person in, in the priest. But maybe if you can talk about what, how the practices look a little bit different. Is there a vibrant Hinduism that's still practiced there amongst those that are that remain Hindu. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, for one thing, most of the people in Guyana speak only English. Uh, you, you will not see, you're not hear many Indian languages. Now the priests have been trained in, in Sanskrit, uh, but their pujas are mostly in English because Unlike, say, for instance, an Abhishekam or a, or a Homa, where you have the priest simply chanting and and offering foodstuffs, flowers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. the the events that I went to uh, 
There was some of that, but the vast majority of what takes place at a worship event in Guyana, two things, very, very vigorous kirtan, very vigorous. Sometimes, uh, uh, for instance, uh, when we, in our temple, when we do an Abhishekam, uh, after the first part, when they close the curtains and they uh, clean the deity and, and dress the deity, then we might sing bhajans for about uh, 10, 15 minutes, and then we resume uh, the, the rest of, we, we have arati, right? So uh, that's what we do here in Grand Rapids. So the, the bhajans are just sort of a filler. Bhajans there are so much a part of the ceremony and the idea of katha. Uh, they are all, uh, or at least most of them, are devotees of Ram and Sita. The Ramayan uh, is, has a very important role to play in their lives. And so uh, expounding, to telling a story from the Ramayan and expounding in, in a very similar way that a, a Christian or a Jew leading uh, a worship service would read from the Bible and then expound on that Bible story, you know, get, getting into the, 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 the theology and philosophy of what that means. That is what I saw the priests do is really uh, uh, try to make sure that the devotees would leave the temple uh, with a greater knowledge of the Ramayan. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty, really amazing. It's almost a story of survival and perseverance that uh, the community has for 200 years has faced the challenges of trying to keep their traditions alive, first coming over as indentured servants, then from there kind of, you know, evolving and, you know, moving forward into more modern times and now facing these renewed challenges or even maybe even more aggressive challenges from Christian missionaries still managing to uh, retain their religious practices, and from what it sounds like, uh, keeping up a quite vibrant form of Hinduism and Hindu practice there. Yes, yes, uh, th- that is that is a good sketch of of what's happening. Let me let me share one incident uh, with you um, and and everyone listening because it really put an exclamation point at, at the end of um, my journey. So I, I spent uh, nine days there, and it was a, a <laughs> it was a vigorous journey. Uh, we were going to uh, different towns and cities uh, throughout that that whole time, and I was hearing these stories. But it's one thing to hear a story and one thing to see something with your own eyes. That and this happened on the last day that I was there. I was with a Swami. Uh, Swami Akshananda was uh, uh, a, a, a marvelous. He, he uh, started a school there, and uh, he, he does great work in Guyana. And we were together, and we were in a very busy marketplace. And I saw two Indian women. First of all, I saw one Indian woman and she had religious literature, Christian religious literature in her hands. Very easily seen. I didn't quite see that she had a cohort working the other side of the street. 
And then I looked and I saw with my own eyes, as did the Swami, this other woman partnering, obviously, with the other one, because she had looked like they had the same literature, talking to what looked to be like a, a maybe a 10-year-old Indian girl. And this woman said to the uh, Indian girl, as she was showing her the literature, see, your Hindu gods are demons. That broke my heart. Now, the Swami, God bless him, because he, he, he just lit into that woman. <laughs> and he said, you leave that girl alone. That's child abuse. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? Uh, you know, to put that kind of fear to a child like that. And, and obviously having that child going home and, and saying, mommy and daddy, you know, we're going to hell or, or some nonsense like that. Uh, I, it, it was a, 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 a sad experience, a devastating experience, uh, to some level, but I'm very happy that I had that because it, it, it just, it made it so real for me that this is what is happening. Wow. So, you know, I think from that story, it sounds like, you know, the role of the spiritual and community leaders is also being a guardian almost to try to protect the flock, so to speak, or to protect the community from these types of predatory practices, which seem to be quite prevalent. Um, and so they're almost playing the role of priest, spiritual guide, as well as community leader and trying to look out for the best interest of the community outside of just devotional or religious practices. You are very correct. And this one Swami of which I speak, uh, uh, he, he does that, uh, that that's his job daily. He really is a, a protector of the Dharma and uh, works, works very hard to, to keep the community his local community uh, as as fixed in the Dharma as possible. He, I, I see him interacting with people, and he's amazing. I'm I'm quite sure that the people who are in his orbit would never leave because they know that they would disappoint him. As a matter of fact, when we were in a, a Georgetown marketplace, <laughs> uh, we come up upon this. Um, this this Christian group now they were they were black. The two women I talked about were Indian, but okay now now we have a small group, maybe two or three uh, African males, and they have this really little canopy with a chair underneath and the sign talking it advertising their church, and they were giving healings. And by healings, they were they were placing their hands on the heads of people who were sitting in a chair under this canopy. And they were saying they were praying very loud. <laughs> and as we're walking through the marketplace, uh, Swami sees a woman sit down and get a prayer blessing from these these uh, people. And and she gets up and Swami walks up to her and says, why are you doing that? You're a good Hindu woman. Well, they knew one another. 
and she got busted. <laughs> and and but I know he, he was so sweet about it. He wasn't he wasn't yelling at her or anything. It's just you don't have to do that. Stay within your community. This is this is who you are. So uh, that that's the kind of that's the kind of relationship that I saw that Swami had. And again, I also saw that uh, many of these priests whom I met during the trip, the kind of relationship that they have with their, uh, with their flock. By the way, the, the school that Swami Aksharananda uh, uh, founded, it's, it's a Hindu school. And this is really interesting, Samir, because I found the same kind of thing in India. It's a Hindu school, but people from any religion can go there. But the only thing Hindu that they do is pray at the beginning of school and I believe just at the end of school. So they learn some shlokas and, and no matter who you are, whether you're a Muslim or whether you're a Christian, you, you recite these shlokas, but in terms of being able to get a Hindu education, it, it's, it's non-existent. But, but actually, Fred, I may differ with you there because I think math and science and all the subjects are actually inherently getting into education. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I spoke there uh, one day. I went uh, like the, every, I spoke at every class during the entire day. The, the, uh, the class would get out and I'd go to another classroom and I'd give the same talk. So I gave it, uh, you know, four, five, six times during the day. And then I gave a, uh, a talk to uh, parents and stakeholders in the school after, after school. Uh, anyway, um, and I would ask for a show of hands. There were Christians and Muslims in the school. They're welcome there with open arms and they don't feel any pressure. The fact that it is a Hindu school, uh, as a matter of fact, Swami told me, our goal is to, uh, uh, to graduate Muslims as Muslims, Christians as Christians and Hindus as Hindus. I just found it interesting that the only real expression was the memorization and then chanting of of shlokas but no there was never there's not an introduction to hinduism uh that i thought perhaps the hindu kids could go and that the uh uh, muslims and christians could be exempt from but um, that's just kind of how they do it and that's kind of a great way of keeping the hindu community engaged but also having them go to a school that seems like feels like a mainstream school that they would get in perhaps a better education there than anywhere else Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, Fred, I think we are coming to the end of our time, but uh, it was a eye-opening and fascinating conversation. Um, and I was just wanted to see if you wanted to leave us with any one last uh, thing or thoughts on your trip or um, a little bit more broadly about some of the challenges of the community um, in Guyana itself. I would go back to um, what I mentioned earlier, that what what the people I spoke to are hoping is that the greater world Hindu community will recognize that there is a Hindu population there. And when they say they would like support, they're not very clear in terms of what they're asking for. They're not asking, I never heard anybody asking for money. 
I never heard of anybody asking for somebody to come in and, you know, build an ashram or something. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm hearing. I, I think that they just want to connect with, especially, especially uh, those of us in North America. Um, and they would love more visitors. And the people I spoke to said, please come down again, or please have your colleagues come down and we will take care of your needs. Uh, there was a, a social services center down there. Uh, the, uh, the uh, owner uh, was absolutely insistent saying people from North America, people from Hindu American foundation, whoever they are, if they want to come down and they want to see uh, how we practice, if they want to lend any help towards our, uh, our, our efforts opposing conversion, here is your headquarters. This, this is you. You can stay here. We'll feed you. We'll take you wherever you want to go. I, I just found that to be very generous and very heartfelt. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. And if you really enjoyed this episode and want to ensure more of them get made, you can also make a donation to HAF over at hafsite.org slash donate. Finally, if you have any comments or suggestions, please email sohindu at hafsite.org. Thanks again for listening.